Seems like only yesterday, but it was Easter Sunday, 1996. I had just moved to Woodstock, Georgia. We had four services at First Baptist that Sunday morning. The pastor asked me to preach one of them. He invited Ernie Haas to come to uh, Woodstock. He sang that song that day. We had 15,000 people in four services. We had 183 souls saved that day. It's been my favorite gospel song ever since that day. And Ed already had the music planned today, but I told him what I was preaching and asked him if he would sing that. And I don't know anybody I'd rather hear sing than Ed Keys. Amen. And the reason I'd rather hear him is because I know he's singing it from his heart. I don't know anybody who preaches the music like Ed does, and I really appreciate him doing that. What a blessing. It is a joy and an honor to be back in Mobile. It's like coming home to preach. I have so many wonderful memories over these 45 years from Mobile, Alabama. Our uh, son, Blake, was born here. Early one morning, I was playing golf with Brother Fred, Brother Ed, and the staff. I got a call that I needed to get home quickly, that um, Pansy was about to give birth. Uh, we were in my car. They told me to find a ride home. They kept my car and played golf. I finally got home, got the other car, and I literally thought she was going to have that baby before I got her to the Mobile Infirmary. I crossed um, Mobile and Dolphin Street, and I really thought she was going to have that baby. I was begging her to wait uh, five more minutes if she could. And Blake came within 54 minutes after I got her to the Mobile Infirmary. It's the last thing the boy's ever done in his life in a hurry when he did that. <laughs> He's been easy going ever since then. Pansy had planned to be with me today, had looked forward to it. Six weeks ago today, she was on a girl's trip to Italy with her sister and four other ladies from our hometown of Greenville, South Carolina. They were visiting Mount Vesuvius just outside of Pompeii, Italy. And coming down that mountain, you know, that's where the volcano erupted in 79 AD and it burned the city of Pompeii. But as they were coming down the mountain, Pansy fell. And she fractured her right ankle on both sides. They would not let her come home because of fear that she might have a blood clot flying until she had the surgery in Rome, Italy. And she went to the hospital that the Pope uses. They uh, did not speak any English, but we conferred with them and shared x-rays. And uh, the lady who was guiding their tour called the American Embassy and they called every day and checked on Pansy, and they sent her her own personal interpreter over to the hospital to interpret between her and the doctors. She had the surgery five weeks ago today. She came home. She's been off her feet for six weeks. She gets out of her third cast on Wednesday. She'll be in a boot and begin taking therapy. I have had to do everything for her, and I've had to do everything in the house. And men, listen, I didn't need this to happen to appreciate my wife. But I have a greater appreciation for her today than I have ever had. I am being nominated for the Mr. Mom of North Georgia for this year. We thought that I would be retiring at the end of this year, but I continue to receive invitations. My calendar is filling up for next year. I was praying one morning, and the Lord said, Son, I did not give you permission to retire. And then after that, Pansy and I sat down and began to put on paper possible scenarios by which we could live if I were to retire. And I could have done it several years ago, but I love to work. And how do you retire from preaching the gospel? 
I want to keep going as long as the Lord gives me help to do so. But Pansy figured out these scenarios of how we could live. And finally, she laid her pencil down, looked me right in the eye and said, Lynn Turner, I want to be honest with you. I am just not prepared to live with twice as much husband for half as much money. (laughs) Now, that'll bless you when your wife tells you that. Your life's mate shares that with you. So I said, well, that seals it. We will not be retiring. I will continue to preach the gospel. And I hope I'm preaching the gospel when Jesus comes, praise God. And I believe that's going to be at any time. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you will, to my favorite book in all the Bible, the book of Philippians. And go with me to chapter 2 of Philippians. Philippians was the first book that I read through verse by verse after I committed my life to Christ to preach back in 1965. It was the first book that I preached through verse by verse when I became a pastor. I call it the joy book. I have a CD out on my table called The Joy of Jesus in Life's Most Difficult Circumstances. And I preached through the book of Philippians verse by verse. When the Apostle Paul wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. He was chained to a member of Caesar's elite Praetorian Guard 24 hours a day. Four of them worked six-hour shifts. Can you imagine being a heathen unbeliever and having to be chained to the Apostle Paul for six hours at a time? Don't you imagine he heard everything that the Lord had given to Paul and that Paul was able to share? But 19 distinct times in four chapters, he uses some form of the word joy. We come to one of the greatest passages of Scripture in all the Bible today. And that's why I want to preach on this subject, Oh, what a Savior. And out of respect and reverence for God's holy word, I want to ask you to stand with me while we read from the Bible, beginning in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Here's what Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for your blessed, holy, divinely inspired, infallible, inerrant written word. Now as I share the spoken word based on that written word. I ask you to bless it. I ask you to anoint it. And I ask you to speak to our hearts. Thank you for the blessed opportunity and privilege of being here today and being able to share. I thank you for Brother Fred and Brother Ed and all these wonderful people. And I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be honored, magnified, exalted, and lifted up because he's the one who said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me i trust you for your anointing and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory 
because we ask it, we believe it, and we expect it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And all God's people say together, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated and please leave your Bible open to the passage. When Louis XIV was the king of France in the 14th century, he would often send for a preacher in his kingdom named Massillon to come and preach before the king and his court. Once after hearing the man of God bring a very passionate message about the Lord Jesus Christ, Louis XIV said to Massillon, Massillon, I hear some men in my kingdom preach, and I go away shaking my head saying, my, what great preachers they are. But he said, Massillon, every time I hear you preach, I go away shaking my head saying, oh, what a wonderful Savior he is, and what a terrible sinner I am. Every true man of God, the true preacher of the gospel, will always remember that it is all about Jesus Christ and not about himself. We are here to uplift him, magnify and exalt him, and him alone. He will brag on the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that all the people will want to see is Jesus. I remember being invited to preach in a church once. And they had a plaque right here staring you in the face when you stood there to preach. I will always remember it. It said like the Greeks of old who came saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. I've come to Mobile today for no other reason than to uplift, magnify, exalt, and proclaim my blessed Savior and Lord, the glorious Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understood that. And when we come to this passage, we find perhaps the most magnificent statement about the person of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. About 61 A.D., during his first Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote these words to the church at Philippi. Theirs was the first church founded by him on the continent of Europe. He devotedly loved them, and they returned his love. But Epaphroditus, one of Paul's fellow workers, a native of Philippi, and the first pastor of the church there, had brought word to Paul that the sweet fellowship of the church was being threatened by a selfish, proud, self-centered spirit on the part of some of the Philippian believers. In rebuking their haughty spirit, Paul cited the humility of Jesus Christ that was demonstrated in his incarnation and in his death. And then pleading with them to walk humbly with the Lord and before each other. He wrote, as you'll notice in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Did you know the average believer today doesn't believe that that can happen? They don't believe that that's possible. And probably the reason is we don't walk as intimately with him as we should. Because when we come to walk intimately with him, we begin to understand that we can begin every day of our life by just simply saying, Lord, as I awake this morning and as I begin this day, I present my mind totally to you. I ask you to clear my mind of everything the world, the flesh, and the devil have placed there. And Lord, I claim the mind of Christ. I pray for the Holy Spirit to so control, compel, and constrain my mind today. That, Lord, I'll think your thoughts. I'll think like Jesus. I'll be so under the control and anointing of the Holy Spirit that I'll have this same mind in me which was also in 
Christ Jesus. I am convinced after studying the Bible for over a half a century that in this passage the Apostle Paul gives us the greatest statement about Jesus Christ recorded in all the Bible. Three simple things the Holy Spirit has indelibly impressed upon my heart to share with you today. They come right from these verses. You might just want to jot them down while we go and keep them for future reference or for future posterity. They may come in handy to you sometime real soon in the near future. First of all, I want to talk about the eternal Christ. I am convinced that we read about the eternal Christ in verse 6. Look at that verse with me, if you will. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is the pre-existent, eternal Jesus Christ. He had not yet been born physically, but he was alive in all of his glory with the Father in eternity. The Apostle Paul is saying back there in eternity, Christ possessed the very nature of God. You remember in the creation account in Genesis 1.26, as God was speaking, and when he spoke, everything came into being. And God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Have you ever wondered why he said it in the plural? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead bodily were all present, actively involved, and actively engaged in creation. You remember in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word knew God, and the Word was God. You can check this out in your Bible. The word Word will either be italicized or capitalized. The Greek word for it is logos, L-O-G-O-S. It means the living word. It is a direct reference to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, 17, and by him were all things created, and through him do all things consist. I want you to look at that first phrase in verse 6. Literally it reads, who being in the very nature of God. It's very instructive about the pre-incarnate nature of Jesus Christ. The key word in that phrase is the word being. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, would you underline or circle the word being? It describes a past eternal state that is extended into time. Both in eternity and in his incarnation, Christ possessed the very nature of God. Now here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ was not born like you and me. Therefore, Jesus Christ did not have a sin nature such as you and I have. Think about this now. You and I were reproduced by two human beings, both who had sin natures, who came together to reproduce a third. We all inherited that sin nature from Adam. Every human being born to the human race since Adam inherited that sin nature. Now, here's the thing about that sin nature. It can never be eradicated. You can't ever get rid of it. It'll never be any better. It'll stay with you forever. Now, if that's all there was to it, that'd be bad news. But praise God, here's the good news. When you get saved, when you get gloriously saved and born of the Spirit of God, you receive from God a new heavenly nature controlled by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. Now, every day of your life, those two natures are in constant conflict with each other. Both of them want to dominate, rule, and control you and me. And you and I decide every day which of those two natures we're going to allow 
to be in control. The Bible speaks of it in Galatians 5, 17, which says, For the flesh, that's the old man, the old nature, lusteth against the spirit, that's the new nature, the new man, and these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do what ye would. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit is opposed to the flesh. So you and I have to live with that sin nature and with that conflict that goes on inside of us because we have to choose which of those two natures we're going to allow to be in control. But oh, here's the thing I love so much about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was not conceived by two human beings coming together to reproduce a third. Jesus Christ was conceived of the Spirit of God. He was placed in the womb of a teenage girl who had never known a man in a sexual relationship in a miraculous, immaculate way and praise God he was born of a virgin the only human being that's ever lived on this earth that was born of a virgin not long ago we had a prominent preacher in Atlanta to say it really didn't make any difference whether or not you believe in the virgin birth I'll tell you just how much difference it makes it'll make a difference on whether or not you go to heaven or whether or not you go to hell because if Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin in a supernatural miraculous way he was born just like you and me and he's just another ordinary human being But praise God, the Word of God says He is the only begotten Son of God. That's what it means. He was born of the Spirit, praise God, so you and I could be born again of the Spirit. And thank God that He was. He was tempted humanly, yes, like us, but He chose against it. He was the God-man, fully God and fully man. As much God as though He were not man at all, while at the same time as much man as though He were not God at all. He was both God and man at the same time. He was supernaturally natural. In eternity, Christ knew that he was God. And the angels knew that he was God. Holy, holy, holy was the anthem of praise that they sang to him long before he was born physically in a manger in Bethlehem. But contrary to the haughty, selfish spirit being expressed by some of these quarreling Philippians, Jesus did not react haughtily or selfishly to his place of preeminence. In John 17, 5, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way to Calvary, and this is what he prays, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had when I was with you before the world was. John 8, 58 says, Before Abraham was, I am. I hope you don't think Jesus Christ just began or came into existence when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He was with God in the beginning. He was there during the creation. He is God and praise his holy name. He is the eternal Christ. But not only that, the eternal Christ became the earthly Christ. Look at verse 7 with me, if you will. Verse 7 says, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man. Paul now moves to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. God come to live as a human being. God come to live as a man. He was always the Son of God. But when he became the incarnate Son of God, He became the son of man as well. Now, I want you to remember the incarnation was a voluntary thing. If you look at that verse, literally what it's saying in verse 7 is, but he made himself nothing. I want you to remember that the incarnation was not forced upon him. But he saw our great need of a Savior, 
and he voluntarily met that need. J. Edward just sang it just a moment ago. He described it. He sang all about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. He came willingly, voluntarily, and obediently. God's perfect plan of salvation was fulfilled through God's perfect man of salvation. And here's what Jesus prayed in John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down freely of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The question often arises, who really killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it us? Was it our sin? There's an element of truth in all of that. But listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. It was God's perfect holy, divine will that Jesus Christ go to that cross. And no man took his life from him, but he gave his life freely. He chose to lay it down willingly, voluntarily, and obediently. When a victim would hang on the cross suspended with their extremities stretched as far as they could for six to eight hours at a time, if the person had not died by then, in order to expedite death, they would come, and because of the position in which they were, they would break all the bones in their body from the waist down. Because if you break all the bones in a human being's body from the waist down, it cuts off their breathing to their diaphragm, and it will expedite death very quickly. I'm thrilled to say to you that other than having hit him in the nose with their fist and broken his nose, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, they've yet to break a single bone in his earthly human body because no man took his life from him. He gave it freely. He laid it down of himself. You say, well, now, Brother Lynn, of what did Jesus empty himself in the incarnation? Well, it was not his deity. It wasn't his being God. For even in his human flesh, he was still God. You say, well, what did he do? I'll tell you this. Rather, he set aside the outward expression of his deity that he had always possessed. Paul tells us what he means there in verse 7. Look at it again. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. You see, he was as much God as God is God. And at the same time, he was as much man as man is man. I love it in the last part of that verse where it talks about he came in the likeness of men or in human likeness. That's the servant nature that Jesus took upon himself at his birth. He laid aside the outward expression of his deity, the glory, the privilege, the majesty that had always been his and was born a baby, grew as a child, and matured as a man. Augustine, the 4th century Christian church leader, called Jesus the God-man. And that's what Paul is saying here. One of the clearest pictures of this is found in John's Gospel, chapter 13, where the God-man literally acts out the servant role by washing his disciples' feet. You say, well, brethren, we don't wash people's feet anymore. We could, but we don't physically. But listen, figuratively, you and I are to be willing to wash each other's feet. I have washed people's feet privately. I would be willing to wash people's feet. I'd be willing to wash Brother Fred's feet. I'd be willing to wash your feet. All you're doing is humbling yourself, and you're taking on a servant role. Whether you ever do it literally or not, you would be willing to do that. Listen, taking the very nature of a servant 
was a voluntary thing. And the thing that prompted and motivated Jesus was his love for sinners. Look at verse 8, if you will. And being found in the appearance of a man, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Oh, what a Savior. He, died, he went willingly, voluntarily, and obediently to that cross. Someone asked me recently in a panel discussion, why did Jesus die on the cross? I'll tell you why. Number one, he died on the cross out of obedience to our holy heavenly Father. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When he took his disciples there to pray and, and they yielded to temptation and fell asleep and he went on alone and the Bible says he began to agonize in prayer and he agonized so heavily in prayer that sweat drops of blood began to pour from his brow. We're told those sweat drops of blood were about the size of a nickel in our currency. Can you imagine a man agonizing that much in prayer? And, and all of a sudden he said, Lord, if there's any other way for mankind to be saved other than my going to the cross, I pray you'll let this cup Pass from me. What cup? The cup of death. You see, God let him look over into that cup of death. And from his humanity, he saw what he was going to have to go through in order to save you and me. And yet he cried out to the Father at the top of his lungs from the Garden of Gethsemane, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He died out of obedience to his holy heavenly Father. He died out of his love for mankind. Nobody's ever loved you and me like the Lord Jesus. There's never been a greater love that prompted him to be nailed to that cross. The Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. And you know, here's the wonderful thing. If you'd been the only person in all the world that needed for Jesus to do all that he did, he would have done it just for you. He loves you unconditionally, friend. There are people who think God only loves them when they do well, when they do right when they're on top, when they're successful. There's nothing you can ever do that'll cause him to love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing that you'll ever do that'll cause him to love you any less than he already does. God loves you as though you're the only person in all the world that he has to, leave, that he has to love. He went to the cross to take all the sins of the world upon himself. There is not a single sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed that he didn't have nailed to him on the cross. There's not a single sin for which he did not die. And while I'm in that neighborhood, let me also say, there's not a single person for whom Jesus Christ did not die as well. He didn't die for just a select few. Praise God, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Not only did he take all the sins of the world upon himself, but praise God, he nailed our sin nature to the cross with him. And that's why we can reckon ourselves indeed to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. That's why, as Brother Ed shared with us earlier, Galatians 2.20, we can say, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When he died, we died, not physically, but positionally, praise God. And every day we can go to the cross and die to self, die to sin, die to Satan. And praise God, enthrone Jesus Christ as Lord of all in our hearts. You see, the Bible says he's God's propitiation. Propitiation is a big word. You know what it means? It means that he's the only one that met God's demand for righteous, sinless perfection. He's the only perfect, spotless, stainless, sinless human being. 
that ever lived. A sinful man couldn't die for all the sins of the world. He'd have to die for his own sins. Jesus was the only perfect, spotless, stainless, sinless human being that ever lived. Therefore, he's the only one qualified to be our sin bearer. He's the only one qualified to take all the sin of the world upon himself. He's the only one qualified to take care of our sin nature. None other but him. And When I think about how perfect he was, and yet he was willing to take all of my sins on himself and all the sins of the world. You see, in the Old Testament, when the people came to worship, they would come into the temple, and first of all, they'd come into the outer court. Then they'd come into the inner court, and they would worship. But then God was, the presence of God was separated from the people by a veil, by a curtain. That was the Holy of Holies. The people were never allowed to go into there. Only the high priest was. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And they took it so seriously, they tied a rope around his ankle, so if he got sick, had a heart attack, or dropped dead, they could pull him out. The priest would go in and offer prayers for the people, offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And if God heard their prayers, if God forgave their sins, he would come out and he would shout to the people, It is finished! When Jesus cried out, It is finished from the cross! Every Orthodox Jew sitting under the sound of his voice knew exactly what he was saying. This is what he was saying. He's saying everything that needs to be done to take care of your sin problem, your sins, your sin nature, I've already taken care of it because it is an accomplished, finished, completed task. There's nothing to be added to it, nothing to be taken away from it. There's nothing anybody can ever say or do to alter it or change it or make it any different because it's the only sacrifice accepted by the Father over in the glory to atone for the sins of man. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for what he did. The eternal Christ became the earthly Christ. And because of that, the earthly Christ became the exalted Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, therefore. Anytime there's a therefore in the Bible, you need to understand what it's there for. Because of everything he said till he got to that, he says, therefore. God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He took on the attitude of servitude. He had a servant's heart. And the servant's no better than his master. Because he died the death of a criminal, God exalted him. You know what the name Jesus means? It means Jehovah saves. Recently... For the first time in 20 years that I've been in evangelism, I had three weeks off and two Sundays. I couldn't figure out for the life of me why the Lord let me have that time off. But he revealed to me that I needed to withdraw. I needed to come away and rest. I'd been pushing a little too hard. And Brother Fred says that I'm getting old. You know, the last time I was here, I came under conviction for teasing him so much. I began to feel it was somewhat disrespectful. And my mama taught me when I was a little boy to respect my elders. <laughs> and bless God, when you become an elder emeritus, you deserve respect. Amen? Listen. <laughs> I had to stay home and rest. So one day, I'm backing out of my garage. And because I learned all I know and all I do from Brother Fred, I'm running a half an hour behind on my schedule. And I had an appointment. And I was already late, 
And I looked out my rearview mirror, and there's a big, long black car blocking my driveway. I couldn't get out. I noticed the guy driving. He let three or four people out, and they dispersed across my neighborhood. Well, I backed up, and he just kept sitting there. So I got out of my car, and I walked out to him. I said, sir, listen, if you don't mind, could you just pull up just a few feet there on the curb so that I could get out? I have an appointment. And then I'm in a hurry, and I'm already running late. He said, uh, I tell you what, I'll cut a deal with you. If you'll talk to me, I'll move my car. Now, because I'm human and my feet are made of clay, that didn't hit me real well when he first said that. My first thought was, and I had to repent of this, no, you're going to move the car whether I talk to you or not. But praise God, I didn't say that. I said, okay. I said, what do you want to talk about? He said, I want to talk to you about religion. I said, is that a fact? I said, well, religion's a pretty deep subject. I said, what kind of religion do you want to talk to me about? He said, is that important? I said, well, it's important to me. I need to know where you're coming from. Again, that's a deep subject. He said, well, I, I'd just rather not say until we got talking. I said, no, sir. I need to know your perspective. Where are you coming from? Tell me. So he puts his hand up from his mouth and mumbled something. I said, I didn't get that. Say it again. Put his hand up there and mumbled again. Finally, I said, no, put your hand down. Look me right here in the eye and open your mouth real wide like an alligator and tell me what kind of religion you want to talk to me about. He said, well, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. You know my first thought, Brother Fred? Praise God, I've been hoping one of them would drop by for some time while I was home. I said, is that a fact? He said, we sure are. I said, your friends you let out of the car and dispersed over my neighborhood, they're Jehovah's Witnesses? He said, that's right. I said, well, glory to God, I am too. He said, you are. I said, I sure am. He said, well, I don't believe I've seen you over here at the Kingdom Hall at um, Woodstock. I said, well, I don't go over there. He said, well, where do you go? I said, well, when I'm home and I have an opportunity, I go to the First Baptist Church of Woodstock. Well, that really stumped him. He said, wow, we must be different kinds of Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, well, I'm the saved kind. What kind are you? He said, what do you mean by that? I said, ever since I was 18 years old, God placed a distinct divine call on my life to preach the gospel. And ever since then, wherever he opened the door, he sent me or gave me the opportunity. I've been telling everybody everywhere I went that Jesus lives, Jesus saves, Jesus sanctifies. His name means Jehovah saves. And I've been telling them he'd save them if they'd just give him a chance. And I said, listen, son, I said, I have, I'm a Southern Baptist evangelist, and I hadn't preached in three weeks, and I've got so much preached back up in me. I'll listen to what you've got to say, but when you get through, I'm going to unload the wagon on you. I'm going to give you three weeks' worth of preaching. He said, well, said, we don't need to talk to you. He said, we'll move on in your neighborhood. I said, hold it, hold it, brother, time out. Listen, I saw you disperse three or four people across my neighborhood. I want you to go pick them up. And I want y'all to go find somewhere else. I appreciate your, your fervor. I would to God we could get our people to go out on the street and go door to door and tell people about Jesus. I really do. But I said, I want you to pick them up. I said, these people right across the street right here, I said, they're members of the same church that I'm a member of, but they never attend. My wife and I are trying to minister to them. I said, the people next door to them, they're Methodists. Good people, I believe they're saved. A little afraid of the water, but nevertheless, they're good people. I said, the guy next to them, I said, he pastors an inner city church in downtown Atlanta. I preach for him quite often. And if you think I'm being tough on you, that guy right there won't cut you any space at all, brother. He won't cut you any rope at all. I said, the people right over here, they profess to be Catholics, but they never darken the door of the church. My wife and I are ministering to them. I said, the people live next door to them, they don't profess to be anything. And we're trying to win them to the Lord. So I said, I'd appreciate if you'd pick your friends up, and I'd appreciate if you'd go somewhere else. We've laid claim for Jesus on this neighborhood, and I don't want my neighbors to be confused. 
He said, well, could I come in and talk to you and your wife a little more? I said, you don't want to talk to my wife. She'll get after you about twice as much as I have if you go inside there. The Bible tells me not to let you in my house. I love you. I really do. I want you to know that. And I appreciate your zeal and your fervor. But I want you to know that we've laid claim to this neighborhood for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe every one of those neighbors, they're not saved, praise God. They're going to get saved. You see, the world doesn't have time for Jesus now. The world doesn't pay attention to Jesus. He's not even an afterthought with them. Oh, they think it's ridiculous. They'll make fun of it. They'll mock it. You mention his name in most places, you they'll either slap you or hug you. Because Jesus is a dividing line with a lot of people. But you listen to me today about these people not having time for him and not paying any attention to him and leaving him totally out of the picture. All nations, all religions, and all rulers may not honor Jesus Christ now, but there's coming a day, praise God, when every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to shout that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of the angels and the host in glory, all of the humans on the earth, all of the imps and the dams in hell are going to say it. A person may die claiming to be an atheist, but let me readily assure you they won't be an atheist after that. They die. Jess Moody used to say, old atheists never die. They just go to hell. But once they get to hell, they're not atheists anymore. But a lot of people died and went to hell claiming to be an atheist. But there are no atheists in hell today. They all believe the gospel. That's not a confession of salvation. It's a confession of damnation. And they live with eternal regret. And every opportunity they ever had to be saved passes back by them in review. And they live part of their eternal torment it's living with how they refused Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll just settle the issue with you right now. There's really no such thing as an agnostic or an atheist. That's just a cop-out. That's an intellectual taking pride and trying to impress you with the fact that he can't face up to the fact that God is a reality. You see, they say, you, there's no God. If there is a God, you can't know him. Or they say, God just doesn't exist. They better go and read Romans chapter 1 in the Bible. Just before the passage, it tells you what God thinks about homosexuality. He loves the homosexual, but he doesn't love homosexuality. And he tells you that in that passage. But just before that, he says, every human being is born with an innate awareness that there is a supreme being, that there is a God. Every man can know God. And if every man really wants to know God, God will make himself known to them. Therefore, he says, every man is without excuse so there is no such thing as an atheist or an agnostic they're just trying to impress you with their intellectualism listen the name given to jesus prophetically has now been earned by him actually as he fulfills all the prophecies about his death burial and resurrection he who was named savior by the angel has now earned that name by his sacrifice you remember what that angel said to mary you shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name emmanuel which means God with us. Roland Hayes was a very gifted singer. He was a black tenor. He was born and reared in poverty in South Georgia, down near where I used to pastor in Savannah. He never knew his father. His mother was a very godly Christian woman, and she brought him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Somehow he got a full music scholarship to the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. He sang before thousands of people, sang before the king and queen of England. Just before he went to Buckingham Palace, he was extremely nervous. So he wired his mother for encouragement. She sent him back this word of encouragement. Roland, just remember who you are. When my children were growing up and I took them to school every day before they got old enough where I had to buy them all and 
a car. I'd let them out at school, and every morning, I'd say to them when I let them out, I'd say, now listen, you go to school today, live for Jesus and do the right thing. But I want you to remember who you are, whose you are, and who you represent. The Lord Jesus Christ, your mother. Man, they got so sick and tired of hearing it, when I'd start to say it, they'd roll their eyes. <laughs> they'd start mouthing it, especially Stacy. She'd start mouthing it. Well, evidently it stayed with them because a lot of times before I leave on Saturday to go and preach, Pangy will have all of them over for lunch. And just before I leave, it comes time to say goodbye to them. And I thought when I got older that what I do would be easier. And I love what I do. I believe that God's taken everything in my life to prepare me for what I'm doing now. But the hardest thing to do is go away from your family and away from home. And the hardest thing for me as I get older is getting started to get going. So they're all lined up, and I'm telling them goodbye. And I come to Blake, who was born here in Mobile. Quiet, easygoing, doesn't say much, but usually when he speaks, it carries some profundity to it. I went to hug him. I said, son, I'll see you when I get back home. I'm looking forward to it. We'll spend some time together. He said, Dad, as you go to preach that revival, I just want you to remember who you are, whose you are, and who you represent. The Lord Jesus and us. I hate for people to turn my preaching around on me. It's true. If you profess to know Jesus Christ, you and I ought to remember every day who we are, whose we are, and who we represent. That's what he was saying to the Philippians. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. You gave up all legal rights to yourself when you committed your life to Jesus Christ. Remember who you are, a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Remember whose you are. You belong exclusively to him. And remember who you represent. You're to be an ambassador, one who represents his king at the court of another. You and I are to be representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have the luxury to get mad. I don't have the luxury to be selfish. I don't have the luxury to do what I want to do. It all belongs to him. It's not up to me. Praise God, it's up to him. and him alone as to what I am to do with my life oh what a savior I've never met anybody like Jesus I've never known anybody to do for me what he's done I've had some people to be real good to me but nobody's ever done for me what Jesus has done if I had a thousand lives to live all over again I'd give every one of them to him I just regret that it took me as long to give him the one that he gave to me. I never get tired of telling people about Jesus. I never get tired of preaching the gospel. I get tired sometimes, but I don't get tired of what I do. I just get tired every now and then in what I do. Today, is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? If not, why? If so, 